Welcome to the Clifford Chance Podcast, where we discuss the biggest issues and trends faced by businesses and the people who work with them. My name is Michael Dakin. I am a New York qualified lawyer practicing U.S. securities and leverage finance law in London. And today we're talking with Louis Lukens, a retired U.S. diplomat who most recently held the role of the Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy here in London, during which time he also served as Acting Ambassador to the United Kingdom. Lewis's prior experience includes earning a degree in history from Princeton, followed by a master's degree from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Lou joined the U.S. Foreign Service in 1989. He served under five different presidents, three Republican administrations, and two Democratic administrations. Prior to his work in London, Lou served, among other roles as the U.S. Department of State's Executive Secretariat under Hillary Clinton, the U.S. Ambassador to Senegal and Guinea-Bissau, and had postings in Canada, Côte d'Ivoire, and China. Today we'll be discussing the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., the present role of the U.S. in the world, and some of the challenges that the current Trump administration faces. Lou, welcome to Clifford Chance, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thanks, Michael. It's, It's a real pleasure to be here, so thank you. So, can we start, Deputy Chief of Mission? Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what exactly the role of Deputy U.S. Deputy Chief of Mission here in London was? So, I was a diplomat for 30 years. I joined the Foreign Service a couple of years out of university. Uh, The Deputy Chief of Mission role is variously described in different ways, often compared to being a chief operating officer at a company. So, you're basically responsible for the smooth operation of an embassy. The way I like to describe it is it's like a conductor. So if you imagine London's our third largest embassy in the world, we have representatives from about 40 U.S. government agencies. So just as a conductor has the strings and the horns and percussion and has to make sure that all these different parts of the orchestra are playing from the same sheet of music, the deputy chief of missions role at the embassy is to make sure that all these different government agencies are focused on the same priorities, which in this case are the administration, the president's priorities of promoting shared security and prosperity between the United States and the United Kingdom. We'll get into a little bit more detail of the the nuance of that role, especially given the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. Um, But I wonder, just in terms of your position within the embassy, you started under President Obama, and during your your term in service, the role... uh, moved over to the Trump administration. Did that role change based on the change of administration? Well, it did. So most immediately when the former ambassador left in January of 2017, uh, when President Trump was inaugurated, I became what they call the Charge d'Affaires, which is the acting ambassador. And I served in that role for about eight months until President Trump's ambassador <clears throat> was um, got through the vetting process and was um, confirmed by the U.S. Senate. So my role changed immediately in mid-January of 17 from the deputy to the acting ambassador, which is a much more high-profile and visible role. Um, and then when Woody Johnson got to London, I reverted to being the deputy chief of mission. Now, from a policy perspective, the role also changed because we had a new administration, new leadership at the State Department, uh, and I would say a new set of priorities in the relationship. And I think we'll probably come back to that uh, when we talk about the special relationship. We will indeed, but I, I can't um, not take the chance to ask you about the embassy move. The U.S. Embassy in London is now in an 
absolutely fantastic facility. And as a consumer of that uh, that embassy, I have to say thank you very much. It's a much better experience. Uh, but you mentioned it is the third largest embassy in the world. I hate even moving offices within my building. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that process of moving a whole embassy within London? Well, yeah, so we have 1,000 people work at the embassy. So you can imagine it's an extraordinary process to move. We, we ended up moving one year late. Uh, before I came to London in August of 2016, I was told in Washington that the move would happen on time in January of 17. Um, when I got to post, I went to visit the construction site. And I'm not a construction guy, but I knew right away there's no way we're moving in January of 17. We moved in January of 18, so exactly one year behind schedule. Um, is an incredibly complicated logistical process. Uh, the secret to the success, as far as I was concerned, was um, me identifying people who are much smarter and better at that kind of thing in the embassy than I would be and delegating to them, giving them the power to run with the, with uh, sort of the schedule for the move. So we moved over uh, about 10 days. We, we never closed to the public. We managed to move the consular section, which does the visas and the passports for American citizens. We moved them over a weekend, so they finished up work on Friday in Grosvenor Square, and Monday morning they were open in nine elms to the public. So it was really an extraordinary accomplishment. The new office space, I mean, you've been there, I think it's, 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 it's amazing. And everything I hear from the public is positive about it. Oh, I think it is it is terrific, and I think given this the scale of the uh, of the project, a uh, one year delay is uh, you know frankly a, a remarkable achievement. I think we've all seen a lot of uh, projects with much longer delays than that. Yeah. I'd like to move over to the to the special relationship that we alluded to before, Lou. Um, following the 2016 U.S. elections, you gave an excellent speech discussing that relationship uh, at King's College in London. And, and I will say that, that that speech is available on the U.S. Embassy's website, and I'd really commit it to people as, as valuable reading. As we commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day, can you summarize what that special relationship is? And is it actually special, or are we just using that phrase unthinkingly? Well, it, it is special, and it, it's a relationship that is so multifaceted and complex. Um, I mean, sort of the, the, the pillars of it are the intelligence sharing that we do. We have the closest intelligence sharing relationship of any two countries in the world. Um, we have British uh, spies basically embedded at CIA, CIA headquarters in Washington and vice versa here in the United Kingdom. Uh, our national security agency works very closely with their British counterpart, the GCHQ. So the intelligence sharing is a really important piece of that. The military uh, cooperation is another really important piece of it. Our military is trained together. They operate together around the world. Um, again, we have their senior British official, military officials uh, embedded in the Pentagon and vice versa here. So it's a relationship that is um, really, you know, we're side by side with the Brits um, around the world, and they help us with a lot of our military activities around the world, and we help them. So the military is a component, the intelligence sharing is a component, and then, and this is where it's changed a little bit in the last couple of years, but we've always had basically shared um, and common goals as far as foreign policy goes. So things like um, climate change and the Iran nuclear deal, where we were very aligned for a long time, we're not so aligned now, President Trump is um, pulled out of those deals, much, I will say, to the British government's chagrin. Um, however, uh, putting aside the foreign policy, putting aside the intelligence, putting aside the military, the special relationship permeates all levels of society, whether it's tourism and students. I mean, there are thousands of American tourists in London every single day and in this country every single day. Um, students studying here, British students studying in the United States. 
we send thousands of British kids to the U.S. every summer to work as camp counselors all across the country. So those kinds of cultural and educational exchanges and programs really are the foundation of this incredible relationship. You know, I think that was highlighted in in your um, King's College speech, and, and you gave a, a wonderful charge to the students there to take responsibility of that of that special relationship. You had a very hopeful note, including, and I'll paraphrase here, that the special relationship is not stuck on past glories and cast in bronze like statues of Churchill or Roosevelt, but that it has been that it has adapted and remained relevant over decades, regardless of the challenges facing our world in whichever administration is in office in London or Washington. That was a hopeful tone. Two years into the, to the Trump administration, you've highlighted some of, the, some of the challenges, but on a whole, do you think that that, that you know, relationship has um, continued to manage through, through some rocky periods, and how do you see it going forward? Um. Look, I think it, it. I think it will survive. I think this is a difficult time, but the relationship has had difficult periods before, so this is not the first time. Uh, and I do. I would. Um, I think if I gave that speech again today, I would r- be optimistic and encourage the students to take an active role in developing the relationship and playing their part in it. But there's no question that President Trump and his policies have made. Um, the, the special relationship more challenging for diplomats on both sides of the Atlantic to to carry out and to promote. Absolutely. And, you know, to, to get into the particular on that, uh, in this late state visit, we've seen that the sort of Trump tweetiverse has, has taken full effect and there's been some uh, public insults to British politicians and uh, political institutions. I know that uh, you personally have been caught in the middle of that in in the past. How does a diplomat manage that sort of situation? Well, I mean, it's sort of unprecedented, so there's not really a, a, a playbook for how to do this. I mean, the, 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 well, I got caught in the middle exactly two years ago when um, after the London Bridge attacks and the president attacked the mayor of London, sort of part of this long, I can't remember if that was the first, the beginning of this feud or if it was already going at that point, but he attacked the mayor of London, um, sort of taking something he had said out of context. And I sent a tweet as the acting U.S. ambassador and the senior representative of the U.S. government in London. um, I sent a tweet basically you know, condolences to the victims, we're with you on this, and um, praising the, the mayor for his leadership in managing this crisis. And um, that was seen by many back in the United States as a public and inappropriate rebuke of the president. Um, and I had some um, interesting phone calls with Washington after my tweet. And, and I had some really uh, interesting and sort of awful messages sent to me over social media from people who felt that I was um, basically a traitor. And the thing that was extraordinary was that the tweet that I sent was basically standard canned diplomatic language. I mean, you know, condolences to the victims and, and you know, we're with you and as citizens. And, and I will say I also got incredible encouragement and letters of support and emails of support from people in London, Americans and British people living in London. So that was nice, and it balanced out the more difficult uh, fallout from from that tweet. But the president has this incredible ability, and we saw it in the last couple of days here in London. I mean, he's coming into London for the state visit, 
And, you know, I guess as soon as he, you know, five minutes out, as soon as his phone picked up the signal, he fires off a tweet attacking the mayor again. And when he called him a stone cold loser, um, that didn't accomplish anything. I mean, it, it accomplishes, I think, firing up his base back in the United States. But it, it detracted, in my mind, detracted from the visit. The visit was overall, I think, a fairly good success. But his tweets detract from that. And he, he's almost his own worst enemy in that sense. I mean, just he, I, I don't see what he gains from those tweets besides firing up his base. Um, but it, and it makes life very difficult for his, in this case, his British hosts, who I'm sure were, you know, wrapped in anguish about the fact that all the preparation they'd done for this visit, all the work to put everything together, that the president would attack Sadiq Khan on his way into town. I think that's exactly right. And I think it highlights an interesting differential between um, the institutional position of an organization like the State Department, which is, you know, ultimately apolitical and represents um, the interests of the, the, the company and the administration versus, you know, a, a purely political position that a specific member of the administration or the president may take. And, and that's an incredibly difficult line, I think, uh, for all diplomats. On that front, the, the, the commentary that um, President Trump has provided hasn't been limited to just um, – discussions of, of specific individuals and in, in institutions, but it has also been uh, peppered with some, um, shall we say, uh, advice and his views on ongoing political matters in, in the UK. I'd say to me, most notably, advocating for Boris Johnson to be the next prime minister and providing uh, from st some strategic negotiating advice on Brexit uh, to the UK as a whole. I wonder, in your view, I mean, do you think that these are consistent with the generally perceived rules of engagement, or is this another example of norm-breaking? And, you know, how you would compare these to President Obama's comments and advocacy of a Remain vote during the 2016 Brexit referendum? Well, it is absolutely an example of norm-breaking. Um, it's There's always been a pretty strong rule that when a president travels overseas, he leaves domestic politics at the border. So you don't talk about domestic politics. You know, he was in Japan a week and a half ago. He attacked Joe Biden. That is something that you never would have seen before. And you also don't involve yourself in domestic politics or the country that, or any country overseas, and certainly not the country that you're about to land in for a state visit. So weighing in, as he did in his interview over the weekend, just before he came here, um, and, and, you know, endorsing, advocating, or praising Boris Johnson's leadership and his potential to be the next prime minister is really unprecedented. I mean, Obama did break that norm, too, he, when he um, said, if you, if you leave the EU, you'll go to the back of the queue, as he famously said, uh, and it backfired, uh, as we saw. Uh, now, whether that, those comments were responsible for the vote result, referendum results, I mean, I don't think we'll ever know, but um, it was a good lesson in the sort of inappropriateness and unhelpfulness of weighing in on domestic issues in other countries. But President Trump, I think, hasn't taken that lesson and is enjoying being somewhat of a provocateur on these on these questions. And we'll get to the, the question of uh, the queue in terms of free trade agreements in, in just a moment. But just to, to make the, that point precisely then, the issue is more acute making these comments in the context of a state visit as opposed to sitting in Washington and having a view on the wider world and what that looks like from the, you know, from the Oval Office. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and you know, he, he does use interviews um, and... I think he is um, 
you know, a, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure his staff prepare him well for these interviews, or, or I, th- I think he's probably unpreparable. I think he, he, he's not interested in wading through pages and pages of briefing memos and preparing for interviews by doing what we call a murder board, where you sort of practice questions and answers and rehearse them. And I think he just he likes to go with his gut, and um, this is what happens. So, you know, he he did he, he talked about Boris Johnson. He did also while he was here in London meet with a couple of other contenders for the Tory party leadership. Uh, and he hasn't weighed in, as far as I know, since he's met them. So maybe he's sort of dialing back a little bit on, on who he thinks should be the next prime minister. But he clearly um, saw his visit here as an opportunity to weigh in on that. He also met with Nigel Farage, and, and to that point about the Brexit negotiations, do you have a sense of how Brussels and the, the wider members of the European Union view that, especially when uh, the advocacy was really for a you know, very stern and aggressive negotiating approach? Yeah, I'm sure the Europeans are not happy about that. Look, I think the president is very pro-Brexit because he likes to deal with countries individually. He's not a fan of multinational institutions. He, he doesn't like the EU. He doesn't like dealing. He, you know, he's not happy, particularly when he has to go to things like G20 and G7 conferences and these, these sort of large gatherings with many countries. He's much more comfortable, I think, dealing with nations one-on-one, dealing with leaders one-on-one. And, uh, and, and, you know, and frankly, the U.S. is in a stronger position. I know we're going to come to a trade agreement, but the, you know, it's harder for the U.S. to negotiate a trade agreement with the European Union than it is with an individual country. So I think the position the president feels he will be have a greater position of strength vis-a-vis the UK once they leave uh, the European Union. So he's pretty, you know, open about his advocacy for you know, a hard Brexit or a strong Brexit. That is very interesting, and I do want to get onto that. But just before we we leave the state visit, we both heard the the helicopters leaving town. Any other final thoughts or observations on on how it went? No, I, th- I think it generally went very well. I think the embassy did a good job with the White House team of putting together a, a, a program that that sort of re- would made the president happy. Um, he likes the pomp and circumstance, and he certainly got a lot of that. He didn't get the carriage ride down the the Mall, but that was security reasons, and Obama didn't get that in his state visit either. But he certainly got all the bells and whistles of Buckingham Palace, got a tour of the Churchill War Rooms, that tour of Westminster Abbey, a lot of things which I think were really important in highlighting the sort of the shared sacrifice that the U.S. and the U.K. Um, had during during World War II and and sort of in, and going back to the the roots of the special relationship. Now that said, uh, and, and I think the British side would have been very happy with it. And the press conference is with Theresa May. I know they talked about some difficult issues in their meeting, and and she hinted in the press conference at disagreements on policy issues, including China and climate change and Iran. But the press conference was generally very friendly. Um, so I think both sides have to be pretty happy with the state visit. It's just, again, you know, he's, he, he started the state visit with tweets attacking Sadiq Khan, and he ended it this morning attacking Bette Midler. <laughs> and, uh, again, it's just, I think, it, it leaves a little bit of a sour taste around the edges of the state visit that s- strikes me as sort of fairly unnecessary. Well, certainly that free trade agreement and the trade relationship between the, the U.S. And, and the U.K. was a primary focus, and, and we have seen a lot, of, um, a lot of talk about that. 
What do you think is the the possibility, the probability of a post-Brexit free trade agreement between the two countries? And, and what do you think that would look like? And how long do you think realistically that would take? So I think it is possible that there will be post-Brexit, a U.S.-U.K. free trade agreement. A lot will depend on what kind of trade relationship the, the U.K. government keeps with the European Union. So the more closely they remained aligned on regulatory issues with the European Union, sort of keeping what they have now, the harder it will be to carve out a free trade agreement with the United States. Trade between the U.S. and the U.K. is so robust anyway. I mean, it's a huge, massive amount of trade, million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. We are each other's largest investors. Um, so it's not as if and the president said yesterday that you know we can double or triple the level of trade if we have an agreement. There, there are no economic models that actually show that. Uh, that that's just sort of a, a made-up figure. Uh, so it's unclear, uh, even in sort of the best-case scenario, how much the trading relationship would grow with a free trade agreement. It won't happen quickly. Again, it was said a couple times over the last couple of days, we'll do a deal very quickly. The president says he's very focused on it. Uh, again, it's not the, the president doesn't actually approve a trade agreement. It's, it's Congress that has to do that. But the U.S. has excellent, excellent trade negotiators, and we're very good at this, and we're very good at looking out for and protecting American interests in a trade agreement, and whether it's pharmaceutical, healthcare area, agriculture, all the services. Uh, I mean, this U.S.-U.K. trading relationship is much much more based on services than on goods. The president t tends to focus on goods when he talks about trade. Um, and the U.K. does not have a strong negotiating team. I mean, they have basically outsourced that for the last 40 years to the European Union. So they are building a team, but they certainly don't have the experience and the expertise that we do. So once we know what Brexit looks like and what is p within the scope of the realm of the possible, then we will start serious negotiations with the United Kingdom, and I expect they will take you know, a year or two. I don't think it will happen in a matter of months, which is what some of the folks were saying this week in their meetings. I, I would say a year or two, and the, both sides will have to make some compromises in what they want out of it, and there's lots of ground to cover. So it will be a long process, and it will be interesting to see what the final thing looks like. Uh, but again, I think the, the value of the trade agreement is a little bit overhyped. Well, I will say, as, as a U.S. lawyer practicing in London in a London-headquartered firm, I can, I can speak directly to the importance of uh, free movement of trade in, in services. And uh, certainly it's one that we as an institution are very focused on between the U.S. and the U.K., as well as the U.S. and the rest of Europe in a post-Brexit scenario. You mentioned pharmaceuticals. Uh, President Trump did manage to do one truly remarkable thing uh, during this visit, which was to get the uh, the conservatives, uh, get Theresa May and uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the Labor Party to agree that they uh, neither of them liked the idea of opening up the NHS to U.S. pharmaceutical and other medical companies. That certainly uh, is poised to be a hot-button issue in, in trade talks. You mentioned agriculture. You mentioned services. Other areas that you think would be particularly contentious? No, I, I, mean, I think agriculture will definitely be contentious and sort of the famous chlorinated chicken that keeps getting talked about is sort of, you know, is, is, is indicative of that. Uh, Health care, I, I think the president walked that back in his interview with Pierce Morgan that aired this morning, but I think his initial position is probably the one that, that is truer, which is that it will be on the table. And the prime minister was fairly clear yesterday in their press conference that 
there will be negotiations about what they will negotiate about before they start and implying that NHS would not be part of the negotiation. But there will be tremendous pressure on the U.S. Uh, administration to, to make healthcare and pharmaceuticals part of that. So uh, I'm not sure that um, the U.K. government will be able to prevent healthcare from now whether that means the U.S. takes over the NHS or if it's smaller pieces of that remains to be seen. But I don't think they'll be able to keep that off the table. Um, agriculture is, again, a big one. You know, there, there are not that many other areas, I think, that, that don't already enjoy really robust trade at this point. You mentioned, you know, in addition to um, a trade agreement on the agenda were issues around climate change, issues around Iran, and issues around China. China in particular has been in the, um, in the news lately, and the flashpoint has really been about Huawei. You also mentioned earlier that the the close relationship of the U.S. intelligence community and the British intelligence community, one thing that has been discussed is in connection with the proposition of rolling out a 5G, Huawei 5G network in the U.K., how that would impact our um, shared information on intelligence. I'm curious to get your views on where you think that um, divide is between the U.S. and the U.K. around Huawei and around China more generally? Well, on Huawei, it's hard to tell. They, the prime minister and the president talked about it yesterday in their meeting, and when the president was asked about it after the meeting, he said basically, like, everything's going to be fine. We all agree. Uh, I, I don't, I'm sure that I don't think they came to an agreement. I would be surprised if they came to an agreement during the course of that fairly short bilateral meeting. Uh, but I think the president just didn't want to get into it at that point with the press corps, so that's why he said that. We, the United States government, does have real concerns about um, the Huawei and the 5G technology and Chinese government access to information that's on those networks. And um, a couple of our, you know, there's a group called the Five Eyes, which are five countries that share intelligence, and it's Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., a couple of those countries have already said they're not going to use Huawei for their 5G. The British government is trying to balance its its sort of the security of its intelligence information and network with commercial opportunities and trading opportunities with China. And they recognize that China is a huge and growing market. So they're trying to walk a fine line and say that they'll use Huawei for some of the peripheral technology maybe, but not for the core. The U.S. government, I think, is not convinced that, that that creates enough of a separation and protection of the intelligence. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. My guess is that, you know, if someone like Boris Johnson becomes a new prime minister, that will give him an easy win and easy points with the American president. He could come in. He could say, I've made this decision. We're going to follow your lead. We're not going to engage with Huawei for our 5G technology. American president would be happy. It would give the British government a quick and easy win with the, with Trump. So, um, and, and whether it's Boris Johnson or any of the other contenders, I mean, I think they're all would have to sort of see that as a as a way to um, get off on the right foot with the U.S. president. On the other hand, part of the political analysis surely must be in a post-Brexit world, a trade agreement with China and enhanced trade relationships with China, China between the United Kingdom. Uh, are quite important and in an adverse position on Huawei could be perceived poorly in in Beijing yeah. and I know you have have spent time working in working in China how do you see the Chinese 
viewing this as a political position and, and perhaps a litmus test uh, in terms of their relationship with, uh, you know, with counterparties across the world. I'm, I'm sure they are. And China's, you know, because they don't have elections every couple of years, the government is able to plan much more strategically than certainly the U.S. government does. So, you know, they've got these plans sort of looking out 20, 25 years to develop the country, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is really putting China's footprint out there across Asia, into Africa, into Europe now. The Europeans have been a little bit wary about it, but Italy is signing on to it. So, you know, China has a much more sort of focused idea of where they want to be in 20, 25 years. I mean, the United States, they can't pass an infrastructure bill to fix broken roads and, and you know, bridges. So, um, and I think part of this uh, effort to, to sort of get out there in the world includes Huawei and Chinese technology. And it's very, I don't think you can really separate these big Chinese companies which get state funding from the Chinese government. So I actually, on this issue, um, I think the United States is, is in the right. I, I, I think it would be a mistake to put, uh, to give the Chinese government control over um, the technology and the networks in our countries. Uh, the problem, I guess, and I'm not, this is not completely my area, but there aren't any really great alternatives. So, uh, I mean, the notion that there's not an American company competing with Huawei is sort of extraordinary to me. It is remarkable when you typically think about the U.S. as leaders in, in technology yeah, and yeah. in this area. And I think it, it, it's an interesting view of where things may, you know, where things may go in the in the future. We've been in incredibly unstable times for the for the last several years. Um, I think there is a, a hope that at some point there'll be a return to stability, you know, a, a revision to the to the mean. Do you think that that's just fanciful thinking, or do you think that uh, over time some of the the movements, the trends that we've seen in the UK, in the US, you know, frankly across all of Europe and elsewhere, you know, will will swing back to to a, a middle point in the pendulum? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think Trump's election, I think Brexit are symptoms of a larger issue, which is people in in certainly our two countries feeling disenfranchised, feeling that there's an elite that wasn't really taking care of their needs and looking for an alternate. And uh, the Brexit vote and Trump's election, I think, reflect that. Uh, And we've seen this, as you note, across Europe. Now, whether this is just a blip and things go back to quote-unquote normal or whether this is the new normal, uh, I think it's too early to tell. I think um, the next U.S. presidential election will, will... be indicative of that to a certain level. Um, if President Trump is reelected and has four more years in office, I think, you know, I think we're heading to maybe a new normal. Uh, but I think it's a little bit early to tell at this point. Uh, you know, I think the key thing that we've seen from a business perspective is around certainty. You know, one result or another is less important than uncertainty of what the outcome will be. And I think certainly I speak from a view of the financial markets that not knowing when Brexit's going to happen or if it will happen is worse than it actually happening or not happening. From a political or diplomatic perspective, is that largely the the same view of the world or do you look at that differently? It is. I mean, it's it's I mean, I think everyone sort of humans by nature like certainty and um, I think we have a lot of uncertainty around our foreign policy right now. And, you know, we've had this for two years now. We have 
mixed messages from the State Department and the National Security Council and the president himself. And uh, the Secretary of State will say one thing and the president says a different thing. So for diplomats in this age, it, it, it's tricky. And you it, it's hard to sort of promote U.S. policy when you're not sure if Secretary of State's really got your back or if, if he's going to be overruled by the president the next day. So you tend to be a little bit more cautious and not as out there promoting um, U.S. And for most of my 30-year career, there are sort of a core set of U.S. values that we promoted. And it was sort of freedom of movement and democracies and human rights. And there's just not that focus on those issues right now. And so I think diplomats feel a little bit, do we really want to be out front pushing for human rights if the White House and the leadership of the State Department don't really care about that, for example? So it's a tricky time for diplomats. Well, thank you very much, Lou. It's a fantastic conversation. I have to say, I feel like in these times of uncertainty, it just shows the, the greater need for tremendous diplomats like yourself and good advice, uh, the likes of which you know we believe uh, we provide here at Clifford Chance. Um, really appreciate your time. Thanks. It's great being here. If you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of our other podcasts on cliffordchance.com. Or for more information on other business topics, such as fintech, Brexit, and global trade, have a look at our thought leadership pages and online hubs, Talking Tech and our Brexit Hub. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance Podcast. Please stay tuned for more coming soon at cliffordchance.com.